Welcome to Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies above their heads, and most of all to the grand history and fantastic stories of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time at the great moments from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. For our first time travels into the history of Nebraska high school sports, we find ourselves on the natural grass of Lincoln Seacrest Field. It's Tuesday night, November 6th, 1979, long before Lincoln's primary prep football stadium gets an artificial turf makeover. It's the first round of the NSAA football playoffs. The playoffs are still new to Nebraska in just their fifth year of existence and only the third year of the expansion from four to eight teams per bracket. It doesn't matter which team you choose to suit up for tonight, you'll be wearing black and gold. On one side are the host Lincoln Southeast Knights, on the other, the Fremont Tigers. But right now, there is no football being played. Instead, Fremont coach Jerry Gadowski and first-year Southeast coach Chuck Mazursky are standing in the middle of the playing field in a heated discussion with head referee Bruce McCoy, and they've been at it for 20-plus minutes already. The crowd and the players are, undoubtedly, growing restless. The scoreboard in the north end zone says the Knights and future NU quarterback Craig Sundberg lead 14-7 with one measly second left before halftime. How did we end up in a debate instead of a football game? Well, about 25 minutes ago, on the real clock, not the game clock, Fremont QB Darrell Pietzmeyer lost control of the football and Southeast defender Doug Barlow scooped it up. The score was 7-7 then, and the ball was at midfield as Barlow headed for pay dirt. He went basically unchallenged, as many Tiger players pulled up, thinking they heard a whistle signal the play dead. Barlow proceeded, and the officials declared it a touchdown. As the Fremont players and coaches and fans looked about in confusion, the PAT was placed, snapped, and kicked for a 14-7 night advantage. Only after that was Godowski able to get referee McCoy's attention to plead his player's case. McCoy admitted that in the chaos of the play, he may have, quote, sucked in on the whistle, and it might have made a slight noise. Godowski responded, the kids heard it, and they stopped. The Fremont coach no doubt thought McCoy's admission would lead to justice, his brand, the kind where Southeast might have the ball at midfield, but with only seconds left before half, and seven fewer points on the board. Referee McCoy would offer no such relief, though, rightly explaining that the error couldn't be corrected after another play, the PAT, had followed. Coach Mazursky obviously concurred, but that didn't end the debate, which the Omaha World Herald reporter covering the game would time at 30 minutes long. Even after play resumed and the final second ticked off, Gadowski would spend most of halftime on the phone with NSAA Assistant Director Rex Jones. Jones would explain to him that referee Boyd was reading the playbook correctly, and on Monday, he would tell the World Herald's Larry Porter there was no protest of the game result available under NSAA rules. So, have we wandered into a story of a state title resting on the rocky foundation of a questionable call? No. Fremont lost the debate battle, but they won the game. Even though Sunberg was brilliant for the Knights, flashing the QB play he would take to the Huskers, He was 13 for 21 throwing, including a 43-yard strike to Keith Peterson that had opened the night scoring. And trailing 2014 late, he led his black and gold down the field on a 74-yard scoring drive to to tie the game up. But it was the Tiger would-be goat Pietzmeyer who would grab the hero's mantle. 
He made plays with his arm and his feet to set up Rob Anderson for a game-winning 28-yard field goal, making the score 23-20 for Godowski's Tigers. It wouldn't lead to a state title, though. Fremont would lose to Lincoln East in the semis, and it was the Spartans who would be Class A champs of 79. We'll get to East and Finals foe Omaha Westside in a bit. But our purpose for putting ourselves on the ground in the 1979 football playoffs is much bigger picture than that. It's a bigger picture even than just looking in on the start of two great football coaching careers, which we were obviously doing on the sidelines that night. The young coaches in the game in 1979 would become legends in Nebraska. Godowski would lead Fremont for another decade, taking the Tigers to a runner-up finish in 1986 and coaching several great players, including his son, Jerry Jr., a Nebraska High School Sports Hall of Famer. Mazursky would earn Hall of Fame honors himself, winning 230 games and six state titles before finally leaving the sidelines 37 years after this night in 2006. We will talk about the amazing roster of great coaches in the 79 football playoffs. Tom Jaworski is already at Creighton Prep. Lee Zenick is at East. Dan Young at Westside. But our reason for picking the 1979-1980 seasons for our first Suiting Up podcast is even bigger than that. 1979 is a great study in the changes in the world of high school sports. In fact, it's as good a spot on the timeline as any to credit as the dawn of modern high school sports in Nebraska for several reasons. So let's take a look at 1979-1980, the gateway to the modern era. Begin with this. To the Nebraska high school history buff, the 79-80 school year is the first year after Mather. Jerry Mather, the author of the penultimate book on Nebraska high school sports history, ended his book after the spring of 1979. His long-planned sequel has still never seen the light of day after long legal battles with his publisher and Mather's death in the early 2000s. That alone would just be an accident of history, an accident of the publishing industry. That date as a cutoff, though, fits into the larger picture of high school sports in Nebraska for a multitude of reasons. As we stand on the sidelines or in the crowd at that Southeast Fremont argument waiting for football to resume, let's sample all the issues that shape the modern playing field in Nebraska that would be in the prep news headlines that night. The football playoffs themselves, long both a holy grail and a controversy in Nebraska sports circles, are still in their infancy in 79, but are already gaining greater and greater sway in high school sports. Nebraska was a slow adopter. Colorado and Kansas and Oklahoma were all sporting high school football playoff systems in the early 60s, but Nebraskans drug their feet. Often, it was an attempt to keep conferences involved in the structure that slowed the Cornhusker State. Even when the first plans were finally approved for the fall of 1975, there was an attempt to continue to involve conference champs. Slowly, though, the lure of statewide glory began to trump conference setups more and more, Until today, when statewide scheduling for football has totally eliminated any talk of conferences in the football autumn. They, in reality, don't exist. No one has a football conference anymore. For better or worse, the only way to evaluate a football season in Nebraska is the statewide playoffs. This was already easy to see coming in 1979. Days after Fremont and Southeast finally resolved their dispute with Anderson's kick, Omaha Roncalli and Bellevue East would meet in the Metro Conference playoff game. No longer, though, was the Metro Championship on the line, 
as the division winners, Prep and Westside, or, or maybe it was Millard and Burke, history is vague since it didn't really matter anymore, were otherwise occupied in the state playoffs. Likewise, Hastings would beat North Platte in a faux Big Ten title game that almost no one noticed. These games would soon disappear, just like conferences themselves in football season. The playoffs were young, but their dominance of the prep landscape was certain already. Conferences still hold some sway in basketball and other sports, but when was the last time you heard someone say, sure, we bowed out early in districts, but we were conference runners-up? That change of perspectives, of values, was well underway as those coaches squabbled in 1979. And it won't be just football changed. The point system, developed for the football playoffs, will be used in Class A basketball in the winter of 1980 and make its way slowly into every team sport and every class in the state. This move to more statewide focus for all schools is a big part of the NSAA we live with today. Another seismic change in prep sports was still shifting underfoot that night at Seacrest, girls' sports. The idea that among the student crowd for both teams that night, there were young ladies who would support the Knights and the Tigers, not as cheerleaders or members of the pep squad, but as volleyball players, basketball players, and track athletes, was still very new to Nebraska. Title IX coincidentally went into effect the same year as the football playoffs. And though Nebraska had enacted state track for girls in 1971 and volleyball in 1972, basketball had only held three state tournaments by that night in 1979. The schools, the fans, and the newspapers were still learning to deal with this new reality. The World Herald in the fall of 79 would pat itself on the back in print for actually sending a reporter, one with no photographer, to Kearney for the state volleyball championships to see North Platte, Kimball, Ansley, and Hampton hoist trophies. Regular season and district coverage varied from non-existent to agate type. A letter to the World Herald after the tournament suggested that the paper choose an all-state volleyball squad for the top girls, as they always did for the football boys. Hmm, said the paper, we'll think about it, maybe next year. Girls were still in the second-best gym and begging for funding and practice time. But the modern-day reality of girls' events that draw thousands and girls' athletes who are the pride of their communities was coming over the not-so-distant horizon, even that November night in Lincoln. Ironically, it was one of those barely-noticed girls' sports that drew a newspaper headline that was a shocker in 1979, but it's all too familiar now as an ever-present part of prep sports. High school gym issue may end up in court. NSAA rule forcing showdown. The controversy resolved around high school girls gymnasts being forced to choose between club teams and high school teams, with all the college scholarships, money, and school pride issues that we still hear about all the time today. Some gymnasts and club coaches thought the NSAA rule forbidding simultaneous competition was too restrictive. The idea that such an issue could end up in court is obvious to the modern sports fan, but would still be novel to the fans we meet that night in 1979. Though they might tell us about the U.S. Supreme Court decision of January of that year that backed up an Arlington High School disciplinary decision. Arlington coaches and administrators had kicked five basketball players, three boys and two girls, off their teams in 1979, after the five admitting to drinking beer at a party. The highest court in the land had to get involved when the parents fought the school decision. The Supremes said the school was within its rights and had followed the necessary due process. Due process. It's a phrase we hear on the high school sports scene all the time now. Novel then, but nothing that would surprise us today.
The flip side of the dual competition during the season issue, what kind of competition should go on outside of the season, would also be a hot topic in the stands in 79. Those fans might be talking about the great Lions basketball team of the past winter, the 26-0 state champs led by Jeff Hayes, Jim Gustafson, and Jim Goings. Those Lions were the prep story of the previous winter as they dominated Class C basketball and the imagination of basketball fans who wondered how they would do against the big boys in Omaha and Lincoln. But, it was reported in the newspapers, that wasn't an issue for only your imagination, for the Lions boys had made the three-hour round trip to Omaha weekly the previous summer to play in the Creighton Prep Summer League, going a respectable 9-3. and three. I'm sure down the line we'll focus on the 79 Lions team, maybe taking time to compare them to the 2005 Ravenna team. But for now, the talk of prep fans in 1979 would have been summer league basketball. Was competing in the summer going to become the new normal? And how were teams outside the metropolitan areas where those leagues existed, the prep league in Omaha, the Coke league in Lincoln, going to be able to compete? Now, we know the answer. Year-round prep preparation and competition is the new normal in prep athletics. Many of the factors that define our current era of high school sports have their genesis in the decade that culminated with the 1979-1980 school year. From the introduction of the football playoff system to Title IX letting the girls in the game, from parents and athletes willing to challenge schools and coaches in the courts to the issues of year-round play. Beyond all that, though, 79-80 was a fantastic year of great games and great champions. The game of the year in the football playoffs was happening far to the west of our sideline in Lincoln in the first round Class B matchup in McCook. The Bison entered the playoffs ranked number one but had to come from behind three times to defeat Scrappy View, 26-21. McCook relied on the big play with TD runs of 79 and 42 yards and a 62-yard punt return by Rick Henley late in the game. Platteview just kept churning out long drives to respond, including an 80-yard nine-play number in the final quarter. The Trojans' final effort drive, though, ran out of clock at the Bison five-yard line as a pass caught in the end zone was ruled out of bounds. The unbeaten Class B number one team had survived, but they wouldn't make it through the next weekend, falling at, falling at Norris in the semifinal. The World Herald still insisted on calling it Firth Norris in those days, 27-9. Quarterback Lenny Hoover's knee was a question mark for the Titans before the game, but he showed no signs of it during. The week after, Norris would win another great game of the Class B playoffs right here at Seacrest Field, where they hosted the championship game against Plattsmouth. The Blue Devils looked on their way to the crown in the first half, leading 19-13, after taking advantage of two Titan fumbles and an 86-yard fake punt touchdown run called by punter Todd Mitties at the line of scrimmage. But the tables turned in the second half as it was Plattsmouth dropping the ball the first two times they had it, and the Titans controlling the ball and the clock. The Blue Devils would only have the ball for seven more plays in the game. The winning score was a fourth down pass from Hoover to tight end Craig Prang. Neither school had returned, has returned to the big game since that 20-19 thriller. In Class C1, Fremont Bergen held off a furious rally by Grand Island Central Catholic on the strengths of runs by Mark Mendlick and Bob Kingston to win 20-12. GICC, coached by another legend, Carl Tesmer, still going strong at Hastings St. Cecilia today, had found its way to the finals via the trick play, defeating Battle Creek 20-7 with a fake punt, leading to an early Crusader lead.
Who was coaching the Braves sideline? Another Hall of Famer, of course, Bob Schnitzler. In the smaller half of C, Grant powered through a 12-0 season with a 34-6 drubbing of Ansley in the final. It was Grant's third title in four years. A Grant businessman told the Omaha paper that support for the team is so strong in the Western community that there is more activity in the local cemetery on a game afternoon than there is on Main Street. He also recounted townspeople gathering to scoop the four inches of snow off the field before the Plainsman's first round game versus Weeping Water. Today, the reach of school consolidation is reached well into those C2 schools, as Coleridge, Nelson, and Orchard were all in the 11-man playoffs in 1979, but are only found in hyphenated versions in today's scores. This was the first year of two eight-man classes. Previously, Class D was separated into an 11-man and 8-man division. Of the 16 teams in the eight-man brackets in 79, only three schools are still open today. And two of those, Shickley and Spalding Academy, compete athletically now as co-ops, not on their own. Spalding Academy found its way to the state final for the last game of Coach Ed Colloran's 46-year run at the school in 79. The Knights fell short, losing to unbeaten Beamer 40-20, but still celebrated the longtime mentor. Before the game, Colloran told Wally Prevost of the World Herald, This is the first time for me. It will be fun regardless of the outcome. The real joy is watching men compete for the love of the game. Colloran was the last of the old-time coaches grandfathered in when the NSAA changed its rules in the 70s requiring head coaches to hold teaching certificates. Colloran won 636 basketball games and 166 football contests before hanging up his whistle. And yes, he's another Hall of Fame coach on the sidelines in 1979. That third eight-man school still operating solo today, the Arthur Wolves, have the 1979 eight-man two state championship trophy proudly displayed right outside the gym. The Wolves finished the season 11-1, beating favored Hildreth 32-20 in the final. Colorful coach Robert Girton noted the upside after the game, quote, We were seventh seeded going into the playoffs, and now we're in seventh heaven. The Wolves' offense behind quarterback Tony Tenery rolled up 551 yards in the title contest. The Class A title game was played in front of an overflow crowd of 7,500 at Omaha Westside. It was a rematch of the first playoff championship game, East versus Westside. East won 20-9 in that first season of the playoffs, and Omaha schools had been on the short end of every Class A bracket in between. Lincoln Southeast claimed back-to-back titles, and Grand Island won in 1978. On the losing end all three times was Creighton Prep. Prep's 79 season ended in the semis, falling 28-7. Before the game, Prep captain Dwayne Long had hoped the Junior Jays would break the cycle, lamenting, quote, I know they call us the Minnesota Vikings of Nebraska high school football. Of course, as time travelers, we know Prep would shed the moniker even as the Vikings NFL futility continues to this day. Prep would win seven titles in the next 11 years. They were the powerhouse, securing Coach Tom Jaworski's Hall of Fame spot, of a decade in the 80s where Omaha won every single Class A title. The question in 1979 then is, is this the last year of the Omaha's bridesmaid era or the first of Metro dominance? Entering the playoffs, East, Prep, and Westside had identical 8-1 records. East was number one and hadn't lost since a week three stumble to Southeast. Prep had been number one most of the season after handling, handing Westside its only loss, but stumbled late against Omaha South. In the final, 
West Side and East were a study of contrast beyond their Omaha and Lincoln addresses. East, under head coach Lee Zenick, as they had been since the school opened its doors in 1967, had the most sophisticated passing attack in the state. They ran pro formations and balanced the pass and run as well as any. Westside and coach Dan Young made news in the summer when they visited Husker rival Oklahoma's camp, looking for help transitioning to the wishbone option full-time. In a way, this was a clash of the two offenses of Nebraska head man Tom Osborne. East was running the offense T.O. used throughout the 70s, and Westside was moving to the option-based attack Osborne would use to dominate college football during the next two decades. It's no surprise that Young ended up on Osborne's staff through those glory years. But before that can happen, we need to play out the 79 title game. Despite all that talk of the offenses, it would be a defensive slugfest. The West Side defense made life difficult for Spartan All-State quarterback Todd Zart, limiting him to 151 yards passing and picking him off twice. West Side fared no better, as East bottled up the wishbone in the middle off tackle and around the edge. It was a game of one drive. With 1 minute 14 seconds left in the first half, Zart found his rhythm momentarily, leading a 68-yard drive which took four plays. Zart found Kevin Cole and Chip Wiebeck to move the ball to the Warrior 27. Then he found his big tight end, Bob Gustafson, in the end zone. That score and a couple goal line stands when Westside started drives deep in East Territory sealed the deal. Lincoln East had its second Class A title, 7-0. The All-State squads that year were heavy with quarterback talent. East Zart and Southeast Sunberg were joined by preps Chris Knutes, Grant's Joel Long, and Nebraska City's Brett Clark. Clark and Sunberg would play for Osborne's Huskers, as would other All-Staters. Mark Trainowitz of Bellevue West, Bill Weber of, of Southeast, Rob Stuckey of Lexington, Harry Griminger of Grand Island, Shane Swanson of Hershey, and Mike McCashlin of East. One issue that had to be worked out in the early days of girls' sports was the scheduling of sports in Nebraska's three-season format. The first seven years of state swimming for girls were contested in the fall season, with the 1979 championships the last to swim in autumn. Omaha Westside edged Lincoln Southeast for the title, behind double gold medalist Dia Frederick. There would be no new girls swim champ until February of 1981. There was no problem deciding when the 1979 girls cross-country championships would be staged. There were none. Cross-country was still boys only. Omaha Burke Lincoln Pius X and Morrill claimed the A, B, and C titles. Steve Sandusky of Burke was the Class A medalist. Jerry Larkovic of Omaha Paul VI took Class B honors, and Mark Goki of Imperial ruled Class C. Larkovic's title was one of the last for Omaha Paul VI as the school merged with Omaha Bishop Ryan in 1983 to form St. Joseph's High School, which then closed in 1989. The boys' tennis crown that year went to Lincoln Southeast in Class A and Scotts Bluff in Class B. Southeast swept the number one and number two singles crown with Craig Johnson and Charlie Capick. The Bearcats' win was keyed by Tom Junkt and John Fenning winning number two doubles. Jim Carson of Lincoln Pius X won his third straight number one singles title in Class B, and he would return in 1980 for the career clean sweep. He was the first four-time champion since Bill Brown of Omaha Creighton Prep in 1963. It has only been done once since. The boys' gymnastic championship was also decided in the fall, as had been done since 1968. And 1979 was the year of the interrupted dynasty. 
Omaha Northwest, behind individual champs Justy Reed and Mark Bowers, ended Omaha South's four-year winning streak, but only temporarily, as the Packers would rule the bars and rings again in 1980 and two of the next three seasons after that. It is not unusual to see the Northwest Huskies competing statewide in this time period. The newest of Omaha's seven public high schools, and often now the smallest, has an obvious athletic high point in this era. Between 1975 and 1990, Northwest would win two state basketball titles, five baseball crowns, and play in the Class A state football title game. Since 1990, they have the 1994 baseball title, one boys basketball appearance at state, and some state track medals. That's it. As we continue our journey, the Huskies are the defending state basketball champs as our winter season begins. But All-Stater Leo Crawford and seven other seniors from the class of 1979 have moved on. Coach Dick Coe, though, has a rising star in sophomore Ron Kellogg. Having a star sophomore in the winter of 1980 is not rare in Nebraska, as we'll learn next week when we return to the winter and spring seasons of 1979 and 1980, the gateway to the modern era. Until next time, this has been Suiting Up Varsity. us on Twitter, where our handle is at SuitUpVarsity. See us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SuitingUpVarsity. When you get there, you can ask questions about Nebraska high school history, leave suggestions for future episodes, or give your opinion on issues facing high school sports 40 years ago. Or you could answer this week's trivia question. Which was the last non-Lincoln or Omaha school to win the Class A state football championship? We hope to hear from you soon. Also, if you like this podcast, take time to rate us on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcast. It helps others to find our show. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Volume 1, Part 1, written and produced by me, Greg Mays, technical and research assistance by Tate Mays, helpful audio advice and encouragement from Chris Shukai, and as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network. Copyright 2016.